0: Quick note before getting into the conversation, Spotify has just released their rating system, so if you haven't already, I would love it if you would go give us a five-star rating on Spotify, and if you haven't already as well, you can give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. All right, getting into the conversation this week, it's uh, incredibly important, and uh, the conversation I had was with Jerry Blassingame jerry is the founder and executive director at soteria community development corporation and jerry tells his story and it was a story that i had never heard anything like before and uh some quick cliff notes jerry was arrested in the mid 90s on a drug offense and was sentenced to 20 years jerry ended up being paroled three and a half years later um credit to the person and the individual that he became while in jail and the work he was putting in. But since getting out in 1999, his passion and his mission has been assisting individuals re-entering society that have been incarcerated. And as you can imagine, and you will hear, there are so many boundaries um, that are put up for these individuals just trying to get back, find a job, find a place to live, and he has been on the forefront of this. He's been working with South Carolina legislation. He's, he's doing incredible things to, uh, to help the community and help these individuals just try to get back on their feet and live a normal life. Um, Jerry's an incredible human being, and uh, I thoroughly enjoy meeting him. I cannot wait to continue to work with him, um, it's super important. And uh, before getting into the conversation, As we always talk about, my partner, Engineered Sleep. Engineered Sleep, local mattress manufacturer in Greenville, South Carolina. And their mission is to work with their clients, their customers, on finding the best mattress for them and make that process as easy as possible. And that's exactly what they do their products are amazing. I have three mattresses from them. I try and refer all my friends to them. And I can tell you what, whenever somebody gets a, a new mattress from them, they start sleeping better. It transforms their life. They have more energy. They have better focus. They have a clear mind. All these things go with getting better sleep. So reach out to the team at Engineered Sleep. Use promo code LIVE10. You'll get 10% off your order. So you can go to their website engineered or their showroom in Greenville, South Carolina. Get yourself a new mattress and start living better. Um, without further ado, here is my conversation with Jerry Blasting. Welcome to Live Life in Motion, where the goal is to bring you conversations that give you the power of education so you can use those tools to optimize your life on a personal and professional level. To better yourself your community and those around you Jerry, first off man, I just want to thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to come talk to me, tell your story again and I've been telling you know some buddies of mine and my parents that I was having you on and they have heard about you before and I started to learn about you and what you're doing is incredibly inspiring and as you've mentioned before, it kind of starts with your journey. Right. So I think it's important that we kind of get through your journey a little bit Mm -hmm. and then we'll get into your business that you founded and that sort of
1: stuff. So so what was life like as a kid? Wow. So it was, you know, because of the way my journey started, you know, I look at five years old is probably where I Kind of start remembering things. Mm-hmm. Sure, and, yeah. and and you know, tragedy is kind of where my life started. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my mother was murdered when I was five years old. She worked at Woodside Mill in the Woodside Mill community. You know, we lived there, and um, one night she was arguing with a boyfriend, and I heard her. My brother and I were in our bedroom playing around, and my brother, who's a couple years older than me, he told me we used to always play in the room, and mom would argue with a boyfriend. You would always go to the door, but I, I don't remember. Any times before that night. Mm -hmm. But that night I remember it because about ten minutes later, after he told me, Boy, you better leave before you see something you don't want to see, two shots rang out. And both those shots were fatal to my mother. She was shot in the temple, uh, and uh the guy we all ran out of the house and my grandfather and grandmother lived with us. My grandfather stayed in the house, we all ran out. You know, what kind of father would leave his daughter (laughs) in the room after hearing two shots. And so when the when the when, when the guy ran out the house, my grandfather was coming in and he shot him, also, and he said, "You're next, old man." It wasn't fatal to him at that time, but the next day we found out my mother was murdered. Mm-hmm. Uh, we ran up the street uh, and, and you know camped out with some uh, neighbors. Yeah, and so the the next biggest memory I had was in a funeral car going mm-hmm. to the funeral and one the hearse. You know, we were on the way and it was the biggest snow we had in 1973 and. Um, and just, I just remember the snow falling and realizing my mother is gone, you know, I'm five years old. I'm trying to, you know, trying to realize all this and, you know, trying to understand, you know, I don't have a mother anymore. And, um, and so from there, my grandmother moved away. We moved from Woodside over to Low Water Apartments, which is off of Lawrence Road, which Mm -hmm. is anybody from Greenville know where Willie Taco is, right behind Willie Taco. (laughs) And so, um, I started first grade. And I uh, was able to go um, to Mitchell Row Elementary School, which is on the east side of town. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm living in an inner city, you know, housing authority, apartments, inner city, you know, um, you know, poor, low income neighborhood, drug infested. Uh, but I was able to go to great school, mm-hmm. which is on the east side of town. You know, integration had just started in the early 70s. And so I was probably one of two or three black kids in the class and had teachers who really loved me and cared about me. And they they must have known the type of home I was from. So they cared about me. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things that I remember most is that my teachers really caring about me and it made me feel good. And I wanted to learn, um, if anybody back then had to took an ACES score, uh, <laughs> you know, I probably would have been off the chart, you know, from the trauma. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I had a lot of childhood trauma, but my teachers helped me. And, and, and I guess my, uh, my PTSD probably pushed, pushed me over to being, uh, probably more creative, Mm-hmm um, and I love to read. I was very creative. I love to draw and my teachers would pull things out of me. Um, n- another thing that happened to me, because of what happened to me at an early age, at nine years old, I got hooked on pornography. Mm-hmm. I found a, I, I found a playboy and I'm like, oh my God. And so I would waste, not waste, but I would spend all of my time kind of like calming the demons mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> in, 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 in pornography at nine years old. And I just indulge in pornography for a long time so I had this two life I had a life where I would go to school and you know be this great kid making good grades <laughs> and I would go back to my inner city neighborhood and I would indulge in pornography drink beer so I think I' probably smoked my first joint of marijuana at nine or ten years old mm-hmm. as well drank beer my grandmother was a, a functional alcoholic you know she was a great person she, mm-hmm. she, she she you know she she loved us she fed us she clothed us but you know my mother was murdered her husband was shot and died two years later. My mother was a twin who died two years before my mother. So my grandmother had three deaths within a short wow. amount of time. So my whole family was traumatized, but no one talked about it. <laughs> no one talked about it. We're not crazy. We didn't need to go to counseling, which I would hear, you know, we all right. And, but we, we were not. I look back, we were not all right. Mm-hmm. A lot of addiction, drugs, alcohol, uh, and there's no telling what else went on in my family. Um, so that's just, you know, just kind of going in and then going into middle school. I did really good in middle school, in the high school. So that's kind of my childhood. It was just like crazy. Yeah. You know, just crazy stuff going on. But if you ask my family, it was normal. <laughs> See, y'all didn't really know what was
0: going on. I was just everyday life.
1: Yeah, it was it. You know, it was, I can talk about later, but when I wrote my book, I published my memoir in 2018, mm-hmm. and it was a Christmas party. I went to my family and gave my book out. I'm so proud. Yeah. And my family started reading my book, and they were all mad at me. <laughs> Telling the secrets or something. That's exactly what it was. I cannot believe you would, no, I, no, what are you talking about? We were not poor. Mm-hmm. Grandmother was not an alcoholic. Yes, she was. <laughs> <laughs> Honesty hurts sometimes. Yes, it does. Yeah. Was your uh, dad ever part of the picture? No, I never met my dad. My mother married mm-hmm. and I was uh, kind of born on a wedlock um, she um, her husband went off to the army and I was kind of conceived while he was away mm-hmm. um, and so I never got a chance to grow up with a father him you know in my home sure
0: yeah unfortunately that's the case for I think a lot of people that ended up say incarcerated, right, at mm-hmm. some point of their life. What uh, what middle school and high school did you go to?
1: So I went to Greenville Middle. All right. And I graduated jail Man in 1985. Hey, jail yeah. Man grad.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we yeah. were rivals, man. I'm in to Greenville High. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've read, you know, <clears throat> I mean, you
1: were, you ended up getting a scholarship, right? Yeah. To go to. Yeah. yeah uh, Greenville Tech and Architectural Engineering. Um, so I spent two years at Tech really doing well. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And so <clears throat> talk about the time, I guess, this is during the crack epidemic. Mm-hmm. When do you remember, hey, I'm gonna start maybe trying to make some money, trying to start selling crack, like how did that evolve into your daily life?
1: Yeah, so most definitely. So in high school, I kind of dibble and dabble around with marijuana, I smoked marijuana, mm-hmm. I would sell a little bit just to smoke, you know, and you know, it wasn't it's that it's pretty bad. common. Yeah, yeah, you, you know, I had friends, you know, from, you know, some of the most prominent neighborhoods I hung out with, sure. you know, I can't call names right now. <laughs> but once I graduated, um, you know at, at tech doing re- re- you know really good school was going well i was you know i'm like i'm going to after two years i get my associate i'm going to clemson to get my bachelor's yeah in the second year i realized man i don't have any money you know it's like this is hard you know i was on a pell grant yeah you know my grandmother didn't have any money you know barely had nice clothes back then jordans were out <laughs> you know you know, and gold chains yeah. and all the nice clothes, and I'm like, "This Damn. is early '90s, late '80s." Yeah, it was '86, uh, '87 is when you know this started happening. Yeah, yeah. And, and so '86 is is when I finally dropped out of school. It, it was my se- no '87. It was my second year at Tech, and I just started going going down to the corner with some homeboys of mine, and and uh, one of the big drug dealers said, "Hey, I'll pay you a hundred dollars a day just to watch for the police. If the police come, just say raise up."
0: And $100 a day, I mean, right now, it's making pretty good money. Back then,
1: I mean, you're rich. <laughs> That's $600 a week. We didn't work on Sunday sometimes. $600 a week. You know, I'm mm-hmm. 19, 20 years old. You know. And, and that, probably
0: tax-free, cash in your pocket.
1: Oh, my God, yes. You know, I could do whatever I wanted to do at that time. So I was saving money and... And I tried to, I dropped out of school. I went back, I was trying, but the money was pulling and I was making a little more money from other things. Like I would do crack deals and things, but mostly I was just watching. I wasn't doing a lot. And uh, this guy took me around to all the neighborhoods, Nickel Town, all the places where crack was being sold. And I learned the business and he taught me how to cook up crack.
0: What was the Greenville community like back then in say like going to these communities and selling crack? Cause I was born in 88. But I always hear stories of, you know, New York and the crack epidemic. I've never
1: really heard stories of what Greenville was like, Oh my God. Like Anderson Road <laughs> like was was like was a hub for heroin and crack. And nobody knew this. But a lot of people from New York, Atlanta, they would come, and, you know, trafficking was real big around there. But, and right behind Anderson Road, in some of the neighborhoods, and even in Nickel Town, it was really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember mothers selling their bodies, selling their, you know, selling things out of their house. People would get, you know, TVs, whatever brand new stuff. And it was like, if you ever seen the movie New Jack City, it was really like that mm-hmm. in some of the areas of Greenville. It was so pitiful. Oh, some people, I would not even sell them crack. I'd be like, no, I am mm-hmm. not giving, you have had enough. I do not want your TV. I do not want your mom's toaster or whatever. Yeah. It was that bad, you know. And I had never seen, you know, so many women selling their bodies. Mm-hmm. It was, it was really bad. Beautiful women who got hooked on crack would literally, you know, just sell their body all day long. Yeah. And, and, you know, they would begin to look like skeletons. Yep. You know, by, you know, by, you know, two or three years in, it was really bad.
0: Yeah. What was so? This is late eighties, and then, like you said, the guy you were, you know, hanging around with, I guess probably employing you at the time, paying you the hundred bucks a day, teaches you how to cook up crack. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you make the tradition? transition Mm -hmm. around then to start being a dealer or was that how did that happen
1: well yeah so watching him and just kind of from afar um you know i you know i just learned by looking i love to look and i mean watch and learn and so i just learned and and, and he was really training me too because i was smart very educated um and i didn't look like a drug dealer you know here i am this you know educated black kid from the hood who wanted to be an architect yeah so i was preppy looking (laughs) and and and, and they liked that i was preppy looking because i didn't fit the bill you know, and um, and so he taught me and I, you know, I learned, I learned every hood in Greenville, every hole, every trap house. <laughs> and, and I would he and I would go in them, go in the houses and, you know, meet the people and all of the dealers knew me. And and so I like the lifestyle. Mm-hmm. You know, here I am, you know, little, you know, little guy and girls are liking me now because they see me hanging out with one of the biggest drug yeah. dealers in Greenville. I'm got- driving this guy around. I'm draping in gold yep. and jewelry and gold teeth and the whole nine and um and so i'm getting pretty popular
0: did you did it ever ring or like did you ever think about getting arrested at that
1: time was that ever a thought like hey i'm gonna get arrested one day no I never, and never and and at that time i had never been arrested yeah i knew of people that had had been arrested but it didn't dawn on me that you know there's a criminal justice system that doesn't care about us mm-hmm. you know and at the time if you had asked me about you know criminal justice system i was like yeah somebody do you know go to jail let them you know do the time you know yeah because at that time Everybody in my neighborhood, I knew either went to jail or daddy went to jail. It was just something that would happen. It Mm -hmm. just hadn't happened to me yet, but I didn't realize it, you know. When was the first time you got arrested? The first time I got arrested was I was at a nightclub. Um, Some friends of mine were fighting. We left the nightclub. I had bought a Tech-9. It was registered in my name, registered Tech-9. I bought it, had it in a little... uh, I had bought like a little Louis Vuitton bag and put it in and had it under the seat. I had a Suzuki Samurai. It wouldn't fit in the dash. Gotcha. And so I'm like, I stick it on the seat. It's registered. I had no idea. And so when we left the nightclub, the police were looking for my cousin who was with me and they stopped us at a restaurant, uh, checked everybody's ID. I pulled my ID out, asked to search the car. Sure. You can search the car. I'm like, I got to register a gun. And so they arrested me for unlawful possession of a firearm. Wow. And I'm like, it's registered. Well, it's a take nine. I'm like, so y'all, you know, they they sold it to me. It's registered. What's wrong with it? Yeah. I wouldn't know that right now. Right. They took me to jail and uh, took my gun. And that was like the first, you know, now I got a, you know, conviction on my record. It's like after that, it's like every time I turn around, it was something. It's just like after that first arrest. So what would, would you say that first arrest kind of like put you on their scene? I think so. Um, they kind of started watching me. They didn't know, but you know, they knew my car I had a Suzuki Samurai, yeah, hard top. and so it was kind of gray, had paint on it, so people knew, and um, and you know, but I wasn't known as a drug dealer, just you know, just a person. But and then when I started really dealing, I wasn't really dealing hand to hand myself because I. I was given enough drugs, so I had people working for me early on mm-hmm. because the guy who, who I was selling for, he went off the scene very quick. And his boss brought me a ton of cocaine one day and was like, hey, so-and-so is gone. I need you to run his operation.
0: Yeah, and was so would you turn that pile of cocaine into more cocaine? Oh, yeah. So
1: I would get it in powder form. Yeah, I, I got nine ounces, which is a quarter key of cocaine. And back then, I could make, I was getting an ounce for like eight or $900. And I could make three thousand dollars off of wow.
0: an ounce. It's good margins. Great margins.
1: <laughs> and so I remember and I, I had started going back to school. I was quitting and going back. I just like the tug and yeah. you know, all my professors were like, Jerry, what are you doing? You need to finish, you're a smart kid. And I remember going to Greenville Tech, still in beakers, triple beam scales, mm. and I began to cook up cocaine better than anybody. And um and, and I remember one day I came home from school. And uh, a guy was selling cocaine for me, and he, handed, he he was counting money. I said, this is the money we owe so-and-so, and this is your money. And it was $10,000 in cash money. I'm 19, I think probably around 19 years old. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God. Man. $10,000 I got in one day. I went, I woke up, went to school, and came back, and I made $10,000 profit. It's like you made it or something. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, I'm done. So I didn't go back to school. I'm yeah. like, you know, if I can make this in one day, what could I make, you know? <clears throat> You know, Money's we, powerful, man. It is, man. And so I just kind of like I was, I was gone. You know, it's like I was a, another person.
0: Sure. Was that um, you know, as what was the years like from that day, getting ten grand on your you know, kitchen table or something, to when you first got in trouble for dealing?
1: So it was like parties, you know, we would go, like, it's it's a blur, to be honest with you, mm-hmm. strip clubs, I loved strip clubs, I had this <laughs> pornography addiction, now I can look at women, I mean, yeah. I have to, you know, you got all of, this money, too, yeah, and I would go and just, you know, make it rain in the strip club, you know, and all my homeboys, and we would go to parties, go to Las Vegas, go to Jamaica, just, just it was one, life was one big party, mm-hmm. nightclubs every day, you know, it's just whatever we wanted to do, um, I had people selling for me, I was, I was trafficking cocaine back and forth to Atlanta, uh, my cousin came down from um, Chicago, he got out of the gang and he, he saw that it was, you know, better here in the South than in Chicago. Mm-hmm. And it was just one big party. And the first time I got arrested, uh, it was, I didn't even get caught. One of my homeboys got caught mm-hmm. and he set me up. He Came to my house. He bought some powder cocaine from me. He got caught and they say, hey, if you turn somebody else in, sure, you know, we'll get you. So he, he came to my house wired up twice. And, um, I got stopped for something and I'm like, I'm good. I don't have anything on me. And I had two secret indictments on me. Wow. I was in Malden when I got caught and then they, they uh took me to Greenville County mm-hmm. and they took me in a room. I'm like, I'm feeling good. I'm like, I'm good. Y'all ain't got nothing on me. They're like, yeah. yes, we do. And yeah. Played the tapes. Wow. And I remember the night the TV was on in the background and I'm like, dang, dang. that's me. Yep. So, you know, uh, that was it. That was the first time you, you know that I really you know for a felony, my mm-hmm. felony conviction, a drug conviction.
0: And this, and you probably didn't know it at the time, but as I've heard you mention before, this is where the system kind of starts working against you. Almost. Yeah. Oh whether. yeah,
1: you know once you get that felony, it's like you know there's no need to go look for a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know you know there's no need you to go going get back one. to school you're done, you know. so you gotta stay in the hood and grind. Mm-hmm. And and most of us think we can grind our way out of it. We do, we think we can make enough money yeah. and we'll get out. Very few people make enough money where they can stop selling drugs and get out.
0: How? What was your sentence from that first felony?
1: The first felony I got sentenced, I pled guilty, was 15 years suspended to nine months and five years probation. Mm-hmm. So I did four and a half months on that sentence, jail, t- prison time, and I had five years probation. And from that first sentence, you have
0: lawyer fees, you have things you got to pay off, and the life that you know, the only way for you to make that type of money is probably—I mean, like you said, you can't go get a job
1: to pay off this money, so you kind of fall right back into the cycle. Because I tried, I got out, vocal rehab gave me a counselor, got me a little job. Uh, you know, I'm having to pay. You know, like you say, lawyer fees. You know, still paying on bonds. You know, yep. these bonds a hundred thousand, fifty thousand. These bonds gonna give you, give me five thousand, pay me every week. You know, yeah. and you know, you got kids, and and so I'm like, man, I can't. Work for $10 an hour. ain't paying the bills. It's not. It's not. And then I had the lifestyle that I already had. Like, they were a goal. I want to have Jordans, all the latest Jordans back then, which now Jordans have come back. Yeah, man. But, you know, yeah. all the latest clothes, silk shirts. You know, I would travel to New York and go shopping. And I had an image I was trying to keep mm-hmm. up, you know. And so, yeah, it was a very expensive lifestyle that I wanted to keep up. And so I ended up, you know, going back to the, you know, selling drugs. And I got caught six months after I got out.
0: What was, uh, did they catch you? With a bunch of cocaine, what was uh, how'd they catch you? This Same time?
1: thing again. With one of my homeboys, yeah. who I who I trusted. Yeah, he got he got caught, and he um, he set me up. I was selling him a little bit every, every time. Every time I was selling to him, he would go give it to the cops. And the uh, I think the fourth time, um, he wanted nine ounces of cocaine, and um, he wanted me to meet him at the strip club, Godiva Strip Club. And I met him down there. And as soon as I put my hand on the door to, to get out of the car, mm-hmm. Greenville County Sheriff surrounded my car and, and said, get out. And, I, um, and it was me and, you know, one of my homeboys. And both of us were arrested. And, uh, you know, that's when I violated the five years probation. And um, I, my bond was $150,000. Um, I made bond and got out, stayed out for 18 months on bond. And um, they found revoked my bond. And that's when I went to trial. Um, I think I had racked up about eight or nine charges. Mm-hmm. Trafficking of cocaine had three counts of distribution, transportation yeah. of cocaine, uh, possession with intent to distribute cocaine. Oh, they just pound Oh up. my God. My record was so long by then. Um, you know, they ended up uh, throwing a couple of charges out. I pled guilty to uh, a couple charges and they ended up throwing out the trafficking because it was a violent, 30 years of violence. I would have still been in prison now probably <laughs> if, if I hadn't plea bargained. But, you, you know, that was... My last and final time that I was arrested, I got a 20-year sentence. Uh, after I went to court, got a 20-year sentence. Do you remember the first couple of days in jail when you're like, "Holy shit, I have yeah." When years. I yeah, yeah, it was it was it was crazy, and um, it was just sitting there like, "What have I done?" You mm-hmm. know, I was married, had two kids, wife, and um, got out on bond, Then they revoked my bond. And then when when they revoked my bond is when I really I was devastated. Mm-hmm. Because I'm like, I'm going to jail. I'm going to prison. Yeah. You know, there's no way I don't have enough money to buy out of this one. And that was a time that I really remember uh, because I didn't have anything. They took all the money I had. Uh, I had just bought a lot of cocaine. I had saved up, like, I would save up $100 bills. Mm-hmm. Every time I get a $100 bill, I throw it in the shoebox. And so I had $50,000 in $100 bills. That was just shoebox money. Yeah. So I took all that money. I said, I'm going to buy me a big load of cocaine I'm make a lot of money and I'm gone yeah they make it
0: what was uh <clears throat> you go to jail they revoke your bond but sometime in that sentence and I'm thinking probably earlier on you make up your mind like you are switching you are not going to be here long right you yeah, said that before. right
1: and so so my sister who my oldest sister who who was a heroin addict as a kid had gotten saved she, she had became a Christian and I hated God growing up mm-hmm. and so she would always talk to me about God she was like you need to give your heart to God I'm like God? What kind of God would take a little boy's mother and never let him meet his daddy? Mm-hmm. I want nothing to do with God but the whole time I was in the county jail the, the, before my bond got revoked I would go back and the first time I got arrested I prayed and, and to become a Christian but it was like I just said a prayer mm-hmm. you know I didn't go to church. I didn't do anything. The, when when the, when my bond got revoked, she she would write me literally every day, and tell me about how God loved me and how she loved me and how I needed to change my life over, and it beat me down, <laughs> broke me down. Mm-hmm. And uh, one day I was just distraught, and a guy came in the county jail, and uh, he was a Gideon, and uh, he asked anybody want to talk to a preacher, and I was like, yeah, and I found myself talking to this guy, and. And I, and I told him I, I wanted to change my life and could I have a Bible? And he said, uh, yeah, let me pray with you. So he told me the gospel story, prayed with me, handed me a New Testament Bible. I went back down and sat and started reading it because I had never read, smart I could understand, but I was reading it like a book. And this guy came into our cell and uh, I was frustrated, had through the Bible like this is stupid. He said, what's going on? I said, I just read the story yesterday and I'm reading it again today. Mm-hmm. And he said, oh, that's called the Synoptic Gospels, where all the, where all the, uh, the disciples would tell it from their point of view. And he sat me down for 10 days and just began to walk me through the Bible like you're supposed to disciple somebody. And it just changed me. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted to learn more. And so that was the turning point in my life that I was so beat down and broken down that I needed something. I wanted, mm-hmm. I needed something because I didn't, everybody who owed me money, nobody paid me. Nobody would write me. Nobody would let me. Uh, call them everybody even you know even my first wife she divorced me not it's not her fault but i got 20 i got a 20 year sentence i'm facing so Mm -hmm. everybody left me you know who was there and you know my sister and god was there yeah and so that's when i started thinking about okay i've got to change my life yep you know i got 20 years i might as well do it in peace what was the
0: mindset for me i would be like man I i got 20 years like i can't get out in three
1: and a half but somehow, how did you make that happen? So, I had no idea when I was gonna get out. I was just like, I like what I feel. Man, I was stir crazy, literally. Uh, the When I got sentenced, and when they sent me to R&E at Perry to get processed, I cried for three days. I, I literally, every day I would get up and cry, like, how am I gonna do 20 years? Mm-hmm. You know, how am I gonna do a 20-year sentence? I, you know, because I had seen people leave the streets and never come back. And I was talking to guys in RE processing who had been to prison three and four times. And finally I pulled myself back together and I just began to read. <clears throat> and and then I was just like, you know what? I don't have to do all this. I really don't. I'm like, and that was like, I'm like, I'm not gonna be here long. And that was like, and when I said it, it felt good. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know what the Bible says about speaking words and, you know, life and death lies. It lies in the power of the tongue. I didn't, I had no clue what, but I just felt something and say, you know what? You got to live a positive life because when I was selling drugs, everything I wanted to do, I did it. Everything I thought I did it. And I'm thinking, well, does it work the same way on this side? know, But apparently it did. And as I begin to read the Bible, I'm like, it's true mm-hmm. and so i just practiced what i read and in every day the bible became i mean the prison became like a seminary to me i used every day i would get up at 5 30 6 o'clock in the morning i would pray i would write mm-hmm. and i would plan i would go to every bible study i talked to the chaplain i got involved with prison fellowship kairos and I was known as a person on the yard who was the go-to person. You know, I was a good guy, mm-hmm. very small. I wasn't a big guy, but people respected me because yeah. I respected others. And I learned something. I never got in a fight while I was in prison. I never had a write-up. You know, I, I did get in trouble, but it wasn't my fault. But it was just a time of me learning about God. And and I always tell people, it changed my life. You know, the gospel changed my life. Me becoming a Christian, it really changed my life. Sure. Yeah.
0: And I also believe in that mindset of you waking up every day saying, I am not going to stay here long. Like, this is just like a learning experience for me. And, you know, sure enough, three and a half years later, what are those, is it parole hearings you go to? Do you meet in front of a board?
1: You know, how do you get paroled after three and a half years? Wow. That's uh, people are still asking that question now, (laughs) literally, seriously. um, So, I, I did 16 months at McCormick, uh, which is a maximum security prison back then. People, when you went to McCormick with a 20 year sentence or a 30 year sentence, you would stay there over half the time. Nobody left McCormick. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't getting visits. I'm far away from home. Nobody would come see me. So I tried to put in a hardship transfer and, and it was like, Mr. Blasting Game, you're a flight risk. You're going to have to stay here, you know, until you get because I was in B custody or whatever. And as you know, until you get the a custody. And so I would just pray and, and believe God. Write down prayers. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, about a month after that request went out, I got a call. Jerry blasting report the operations. I got this loudspeaker on on the yard. <laughs> Jerry blasting report the operations. You know, I'm working in the education building as a tutor, mm-hmm. teaching guys how to read. He them me get their GED, and I run back to the dorm and I'm thinking. I'm going to lock up because anytime they say son so and so report the operations, you're going to lock up. Mm-hmm. And I get to my room, and there were two officers standing at my door with a green duffel bag. Everybody knew what that means. My roommate was a drug dealer, and a couple of weeks before that, he had too much cigarettes. You know, he would trade cigarettes mm-hmm. for drugs, and uh, he put some in my locker. And so when they came to check, they were like, "Blasting game, are these yours?" Was I gonna say no? No. I probably got killed in the middle of the night, and I was like, Yeah, they're, yeah, they're mine. Yeah. And the officer looked at wow. me, and he says, Blessing game. Are these yours? I was like, Yeah, they're mine. He's like, All right. <laughs> and so I'm thinking, I'm going, you know, they got me, I'm going to lock up, but. Do you think he knew that they weren't yours? Oh, he knew. They yeah. Everybody knew I didn't smoke. Everybody knew I didn't run a canteen. That's just, yeah. you know, I was, a, you know, one of the biggest Christians on the yard by this time, you yeah, know. Yeah. And, you know, but you have to do what you got to do. Mm-hmm. You, have to, you know. So anyway, I get up to operation they put me in a holding cell and they shipped 25 guys whose last names started with B to a minimum security prison when we got there half of the guys got shipped back to back to maximum security they kept me there so i see i had did right at 16 months on a 20 year sentence and i was at a prison that didn't even have a fence around it wow so and i had seen small miracles before then but that was one of the biggest miracles I had ever seen in my mm-hmm. life. And everybody knew it and nobody could explain it. And after that, it's like my faith went through the roof. Mm-hmm. I started praying more. I started fasting more. I really began to apply what I was learning. And, and you were teaching, right? You yes. were trying to help the people yes, around Yeah, I was teaching. I was doing all kinds of things. And then I met this guy, Kalechi Benet. He and I were at McCormick Correctional uh, together. He was serving a twenty, a 30-year sentence. For, for something I can't remember, but we would get up in, in the morning in the day room and pray. Um, he was serving a long sentence. I was serving a long sentence. And every day we would get up and make confessions to God about what we were going to do. And I say, well, when I get out, I want to start a nonprofit to help people who get out of prison. He mm-hmm. said, well, I want to go to um, college. I want to, you know, make Christian film. I want to, you know, get my degree. We were going, you know, everybody was like, y'all are crazy. <laughs> well, today, Kelechi is a, a professor at North Greenwood University. Wow. Has a master's degree in mass communication. <laughs> and and you know and so we would get up and we would do these things and 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 and, and so he helped me to a whole nother level and these miracles happened. six months after that, I was shipped to a county jail, Abbeville County. So less than two years, I'm at a county facility working for the sheriff as a cook in a designated facility at a county jail, and and so it was like. You know, I was like, OK, God, you're real. Yeah. And you so my, my confession every day is working. And um, and so everybody that would come into that county jail, I would give him a Bible. I would pray for him. I told the chaplain that, you know, I wanted I had a call in ministry. You know, I wanted to preach one day and, and I wanted to do great things. And so he let me preach every first Sunday. <laughs> and so I would preach every first Sunday. And I was called the inmate preacher, which I don't like that word, but that's what they call me. <laughs> um, and so, um, you know, a, a, a lot of people would come in and volunteers. And uh, I met my my wife, uh, who wasn't my wife. Then she would come see me. And I said, God told me that we need to get married. And she was like, you are crazy. <laughs> I don't know what I'm not marrying you, Jerry. And she said I asked her 12 times before she finally said, yeah, but, you know, my wife married me in 1998 and she didn't even know I was going to get out mm-hmm. because of what we were learning Mm -hmm. and we would do fasting together and read the Bible together. And the uh,
0: work you were putting in though, man.
1: Yeah. And you know, she saw it, you know, she wasn't a Christian, you know, before, but she told me, she said, you are really changed. I want what you got. And I said, well, I, we can't get married. if You're not a Christian. (laughs) You know, and people thought I was crazy. How can you tell this woman this? But you know, she became a Christian and we got married in uh, 1998 and um, still putting the work in. And in 1999, uh, February 1999, I got a letter from the parole board. So getting to your question, it was a long answer, but I got a letter from the parole board and saying that you're going up for parole. Wow. Month. And people are going like, this is not true. Jerry, you, you haven't even completed five years on a 20 year sentence. Mm-hmm. Remember my first sentence was a 15 tw- year sentence suspended to nine months mm-hmm. with five years probation. So. I should have maxed out the 15-year sentence.
0: Wow, from the, your first sentence. From my first That's sentence. That's how it should work? When rest... I
1: violated my probation, you have to max out your original sentence. Wow, but they, but I didn't they, know that. All that ran concurrent, and so they washed away. Even the parole board didn't even you know, bring it up. And so when I um, went, went before the parole board, because I was at a designated facility, they let me wear a, a nice shirt and a pair of slacks. I didn't even have to wear a prison uniform. And uh, they asked, why don't Mr. Blasting Game have on, you know, uniform? And, and the guy who took me said, well, he's at a, sh- a county county jail facility working for the sheriff. They don't have to wear, you know, uniform there. So that kind of was good for me. Yeah. You know, I was going to Bilo grocery store, buying groceries for the prison and ordering stuff off Cisco. You know, you know. Well,
0: man, you got it. Like, but you made that happen. From the work you were putting in, God, people around you. They saw what you were doing.
1: Well, you don't get up at 4.30 and 5 o'clock in the morning, 5.30 in the morning to play games. You know, you you know when you get up that early and pray and do good and, you know, not get a write-up in three and a half years, you're right. You know, you're putting in work. You know, that was my life. Mm-hmm. You know, my life was a life filled with the things of God, prayer, helping people, writing people, encouraging people. You know, that's what I did every day. But that was my life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And you've mentioned, but during that time, you had that calling that when you get out, You want to find a way to help people getting back into the community, Um, inmates, you know, getting back to trying to find a place to work or trying to find a home. Was that something you started right when you got out? Did you have the plan in place? And then how did you start it up? I mean, you can't just go start up a business anyways, you know.
1: (laughs) Habakkuk 2 says write the vision down and make it plain so that those who read it may run with you. When I discovered that scripture, I was like, okay. And I had already been journaling. So every day I would write down something. And so for three and a half years, every day I wrote pages. And so by the time I got out of prison, I had everything already written down. I had bylaws written before the organization. I had a name already written, had all my goals, you know, everything, all my goals, my objectives, everything was written. And so all I had to do was implement it. Mm -hmm. And so and I think one of the reasons why my wife married me because she saw I was putting in the work. Yeah. She Every time at visit, I would bring my notebook out. Look what I'm going to do. Look what God showed me. Mm-hmm. And she was like overwhelmed. And finally I say, I need you to go type this up for me. It was all handwritten. I didn't have a typewriter. I said, go. so she was one of the first people that saw it because she had to type it all up What was legible when I was showing people. So when I got out, I started showing people the vision. It wasn't mm-hmm. talk. It was like, God, this guy has put in work. Yeah. So it's like I had already, you know, did a dissertation for a doctor degree or something, you know, had written <laughs> all this stuff down. And so people believed in me. And I, I remember, you know, wanting to start up a house. Nobody would give me money. You know, nobody was like, man, you know, just wait, wait the five years. And I met with Bernie Mazzeek from the State Association of CDCs. I met with Mike Chester who also helped me, but Mike Chester was the first person that rented me a house uh, for my guys. Uh, I was about a year and a half, almost two years in before we got our first house. but. I showed Mike the vision. He brought his whole staff in and said, y'all need to hear this guy's story. Yeah. And, um, he rented me a house for $350, a three bedroom, two bath house, $350 a month, fully furnished. Wow. And that was our first transitional house on Mason street. And then he rented us another house. His staff came in the house and they said, Jerry, we rent houses to a lot of nonprofits that do affordable housing. Your houses are the cleanest and neatest houses of all these people. And you're working with people who are getting out of prison. Mm-hmm. And one guy came in and said, the house looked like an army barracks. <laughs> you know, I believed in that. And so
0: I kind of believe in that now. So yeah. You
1: know. Most definitely. you know, I'm looking at your place. This place is clean as a pen. <laughs> it is really, you know, really clean and neat. So, but that it helps, you mm, know, it when, really does. Yeah. And and so that was, uh, you know, one of the, the turning points. When I got out that people saw that this guy's serious. He's not about, you know, just playing games. He's serious.
0: Live Life in Motion podcast is brought to you by Engineered Sleep. Engineered Sleep is a mattress manufacturer and they are based out of Greenville, South Carolina. They have been making mattresses for as long as I can remember. And their main goal is to make finding the quality mattress for you as easy as possible. Um, They have a showroom in Greenville, but you can also visit them at their website, engineeredsleep.com. If you go to their website, use code LIVE10, and you will get 10% off. As you guys know, sleep is the number one thing you need to focus on for good health. And it all starts with your mattress, so stop putting it on the back burner. Go get yourself a mattress from Engineered Sleep and start living a better life.
1: Did you have the name ready? Yeah. Um so yep, I had Soteria ready. Uh Kalechi and I were sitting in the day room one morning and uh praying and studying and we were studying salvation and I started looking up the word salvation in the Hebrew and the Greek. You know, the old testament written mm-hmm. in Hebrew, and New Testament sure. written in Greek. So I found this Greek word Soteria. Um in the And it means salvation. It means salvation. Okay. And so and I was like, Wow, that'd be a cool name for organization, but I didn't like the the original, the original pronunciation, Soteria, I was like, Soteria. Yeah, and so, yeah. so anyway, I was like, we're going to call it Soteria. But the original name was, it was first, it was going to be Soteria Urban Ministries. Then I, then I landed on Soteria World Outreach Ministries. And that's what we got our 501c3 and our mm-hmm. charter under. And in 2007, I merged with, I was going to Redemption Rural Outreach Center and I started a CDC for them we merged our CDCs together and we changed the name in 2007 to Soteria Community Development Corporation. What CDC? Community Development Corporation. Got it. What, so Soteria, you first opened the door in 2001, is that right? 1999, June. Gotcha. June, June 18th, 1999 is when we first started the organization. Our first house, the transitional house was in 2001. Gotcha. Yeah.
0: What do y'all do for How
1: do, how do people find you when they're getting out of prison? Do people get assigned to you? Do no, they have No. It's 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 totally volunteer. We we are in every prison in the state. I think there's like 19 prisons now including the women's prison. So we work with back then we work with all the chaplains. The chaplains used to refer people to us, gotcha. but now they have reentry coordinators. So every reentry coordinator at every prison know about us. Uh, and three years ago, when I re- when I wrote my book, I sent a couple cases of books to the prison system so that people can read my book. Now people read my book and want to come to Soteria. <laughs> but um, but when when a lot of people go in, they're homeless when they get out. They don't have anywhere to go. And so we are that landing spot for a lot of people when they get out. So everybody know about us. We're on a list There's the list of several houses and, you know, drug rehab that people can go to. And so we're on the list uh, of uh, preferred housing for the state.
0: And. <clears throat> A lot, a big problem is when people get out, they don't have housing or they're homeless or they don't have a job. So they end up back in jail, exactly. similar to your story. Exactly. And when they get into your program, when they, you know, do you accept them into your house? Is there any type of, you know, acceptance process Do you yeah, have to?
1: Most definitely. So there's the application process. And uh, the last question on the application is, Uh, write us a a one-page essay of your short-term and long-term goals. (laughs) And so we don't look at grammar and spelling and all that. We're looking for content. Mm -hmm. And my philosophy is if a person has spent more than one year in prison and they have not thought about what they're going to do when they get out, they're in trouble. And so Soteria is not the place for them.
0: Is there... Have you seen the prison system... Do we do any rehabilitation in the prison system?
1: Uh, up until about three years ago in the state of South Carolina, no, it was just, uh, security, Mm -hmm. lock people up, you you know, you know, there were PI and some things, but nothing comprehensive. Um, you know, we, you know, people need an ID when they get out and education and things like that. And, and, you know, when the economy went down, when they stopped, you know, funding prisons, you know, they cut education out, you know, Mm -hmm. some medical stuff they cut out. So there's, it's not. It's not rehabilitation. You know, there's no uh, any uh, mental health. You know, that's probably the the main mm. thing that most people in prison need. As soon as the judge dropped the gavel and say, I sentence you to whatever years you got, that's that's trauma <laughs> right there. You know, yeah. And everybody needs to get checked for that. But but there's nothing. If people are not self-motivated or they don't have God in their life or something they're doing positively yeah. there, it's nothing.
0: Or having like a sister like you had, support system, anything like yeah. that. What are some of the programs you offer, um, and what do you call them? Your, I mean, they're not your clients' housemates. or they uh, well,
1: we, well, we years back, we I was trying to figure out what can I call people that are getting out because I didn't want to say clients all that, and, yeah. and so we came up with the intern internship. Okay. Guys are getting out, men and women get out doing a one a one year internship with us, so we call all of our people. I love it, yeah, it. and uh, and so they, you know, they love it, you know, they like that term, and um, so, so it's just cool that they're coming doing an internship with us and. What I what we do, I have an acronym I call HIA. Housing, employment, education, advocacy, and affirmation is mm-hmm. what we do. Um, and so that makes it easy for me and easy for us to kind of tell our service, because when you get out you gotta have a house. Yeah. You gotta have somewhere to live. Education is so important for some people that hadn't finished their GED or somebody wanna go back, you know, to better themselves and go to college. You know, employment. You gotta have a job. You gotta be able to pay either your probation, your fines, pay your attorney. You gotta have child support, advocacy. You know, a lot of people have, um, you know, backgrounds that we gotta get cleared up. You know, I was out. I had 11 years parole when I got got out. By the way, so I only so I served three and a half on the 20. So they were like, we're not gonna let you out, Scott Free Jerry. So. I was out for five years. Well, four and a half years in the the South Carolina probation partner and parole service was going to close my organization down because they say that, uh, convicted felons can't fraternize with other convicted felons. I'm like, it's too late now. (laughs) I'm four and a half years in. And so I had to step down from my organization and a, an attorney found out about it. And, um, he worked with us pro bono. We end up, um, you know, figuring out that they couldn't do that. But I pro- I applied for a pardon mm-hmm. after five years. So after five years, you can apply for a pardon to get off parole. And lo and behold, another miracle. I got a pardon. And uh, I was reinstated back in my position. And so when I found out a pardon was not expungible, because I'm thinking, I got a pardon. I'm yeah, great. I read that. One Christmas, I went to, you know, get me a job at one of the big box stores. I'm like, yeah, I'm get me a job, a little part time job, make extra money. And it was like, no, man, you got felonies. I'm like, no, I don't. I got a Mm -hmm. pardon. He's like, let me show you. And it just had it off to the side, pardon, in little bitty letters. It's like we forgive you, but we don't. But we're not gonna forget. (laughs) Oh God. And so I found out that a pardon was not expungible. So I worked with a few people around the state to get in. In 2005, it was four or five. We started a uh, bill to uh, try to get pardons expunged. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, if you got, you know, pardon. I mean, if you got uh, felonies and pardons, you know, you can get it expunged and they would not expunge it. You know, the bill kept going up two years, two years, every two years, and they Mm -hmm. never would pass the bill. But we started working on other versions of expungements. And then in 2018, after 13 years, I was able to help get one of the first felony expungement bills passed. There were not any felonies able to be expunged in South Carolina. Not one. And so I worked 13 years and I... Was able to help get that bill passed. It was a workforce expansion, uh, you know, because of, you know, needing people, mm-hmm. needing employers. So the chamber and other people around the state helped get that bill passed. And so, realizing that advocacy was a big part of reentry, mm-hmm. and so that's why we do the advocacy work. So that was a long story for that. Yeah. yeah. So just wanted to kind of bring some context to why advocacy is so important to us. Then the other thing is affirmation, which is the mentoring, mm-hmm. some of the classes that we do, financial literacy. Uh, that's one of the first things I did when I got out because I knew I wanted to run my own business is I worked on my credit, start saving money. <laughs> mm-hmm. My credit score is like 300 and something, mm-hmm. like winning on, the rate, winning on the charts. Yeah. And I was able to pay off stuff and, you know, and get my credit right and get credit cards and, you know, bought, bought a home and uh, became a homeowner because I was not going to tell other people to become a homeowner when I wasn't a homeowner. Mm-hmm. And so and I did it first. I always tell everybody I'm the first graduate of the program. <laughs> and if I can do it, you can do it. And so we double down on financial literacy. We have a matching savings program. We have a mentoring program where everybody in our program gets a mentor that walks with them the whole time they're on the program.
0: I was uh, that was my next question. I know <clears throat> mentoring's really big in your, you know, your program. Where do you get the mentors? Are they past graduates? Are they
1: some some or most of them are just people from churches and businesses that we know. And uh, the church has been real gracious to us to, you know, for funding in uh, to uh, mentor. Uh, and then we do have a few past graduates, uh, but, uh, you know, but a lot of graduates, once they get done, they're they like, bye, I'm done, <laughs> thank you. You know, but some are very thankful. Yeah, of uh, course. You, you know, but, uh, you know, but a lot of people back in the day, they didn't want anybody to know they've been in prison. Yeah. And, and and so they would get, you know, get a good job, get a home and kind of hunker down so nobody wouldn't know who they were because they were mm. afraid they were going to get this stuff taken from them. Yeah, sure. You
0: know? what would it the community like do you have programs where community outreach where people can come and help yeah like where do you need help where can you where can we try and help and assist you
1: well you know mentors volunteers people come out i think that's the most important thing is is just you know one-to-one mentoring is good but sometimes you need two or three people that is, that's on somebody mm-hmm. you know and uh, we also have a social enterprise where we tear down old houses and we build furniture and nice. so buying furniture from us is a way, you know, even if people don't want to give, you know, here, here's something that's going to be a nice piece of furniture in your house. Or if you got an old building or a house or something or barn or something that you want torn down, that's got some great old wood in it. Yeah. You know, hire us to come and take it down so that the guys will have a job, you know. So these are some of the things, you know, that we're doing. You know, we don't we don't walk around with our hand out. You know, we're working and trying to earn. Sure um you know and um you know of course we want people who do have a big check book to write a check that works too definitely you know but at, but at the same time we want people to come and show our interns that they forgive us they love us they care about us and they support us and so uh the biggest thing is mentoring uh coming around you know with volunteers we have letter writers people that write uh people while they're in prison mm-hmm. uh, oh, a lot yeah. of churches and businesses do that so if anybody uh feel like they want to you know, do it in that way to encourage somebody with a letter once a month or you know twice a month is an awesome way to that's awesome. That as well. yeah
0: i know letters um we haven't talked my story much but i ended up in rehab a couple years ago for uh xanax and stuff and i remember getting letters and that was like the biggest change of my time there yeah was these people in the support system um, just getting letters because it makes you feel like, holy, you know, yeah, man, I got mail, some
1: support. <laughs> mail call is the best time of the day for somebody who's locked up. <laughs> for
0: sure. <laughs> Without a doubt. With um, how many people do you serve now? Do y'all have, you know, do you have plans to expand?
1: Yeah, most definitely. Actually, we're getting ready to expand our women's uh, outreach because we were not doing residential for women. Right now, we have a 16-bed facility where a, a man can come and stay up to one year. He can get a six-month extension. We're probably serving residentially before the pandemic about 45 to 50 people residentially and about Mm -hmm. 300 walk-ins a year that's Um, male female and families uh because we also own 14 low-income rentals that we built over the years for another income stream that's amazing um and we're we're uh we're getting ready and hopefully in march we'll open up a 16-bed facility for women Uh, We closed our facility down for women in 2009, and we're embarking back on a residential care for women. We're closing on the facility at the end of this month, the 25th. We have about 30 days to paint, put carpet down, Mm -hmm. and then we'll hopefully March 1st have it open for women, get a few women in. And by the summer, hopefully we're fully operational. Uh, so we're expanding to do transitional housing for women. Are
0: most of your houses in Greenville or yeah. around the area?
1: Yeah. So most of our rental properties are in, are in the city of Greenville. We have 14 and then our, our facility is in Traveler's Rest where men stay. And then the women's facility will be in Greenville, in the city of Greenville.
0: I know uh, you've mentioned this before, but like that check mark or the check box on application. hmm you know, if people are applying for the job, they see that, Hey, do you have a felony? You got to check? Yes. What can we do as a community to better understand that check box or maybe get to know the person better before just throwing them out as a candidate?
1: Yeah. Well, most definitely. And I'm very thankful to the city of Greenville because a couple years ago, I worked with the city of Greenville to do a ban the box, uh, a ban the box campaign. And so the city of Greenville stepped up. I worked with the city city council and HR department in the city. For all city employees, there's already a band in the box. So anybody who applies for a job for the city of Greenville, they have a band in the box, meaning that they don't look at your background until they offer your job, which uh-huh. is great. And so any people out there who are business owners or you work in HR, that would be something... You know that we could do like within our company say you know what we want to be able to be a fair chance hire a second chance hire Mm -hmm. and we want to look at somebody for their job skill not for what they've done 20 or 15 years ago and so that would be something that anybody who's an employer can say you know what we're going to interview somebody check them out and after we uh um you know think that we're going to hire them then do a background check Mm -hmm. you know because most time what happens is once you check that box, have you ever been convicted of a felony? You don't even get an interview. Yeah, people don't even want to talk to you. You know.
0: Well, Jerry, is there anything else you want to say? I mean, I've been. This is such an honor to have you here. The work you're doing is incredible. Like we need more of Jerry Blasting Games in this darn world. Um, but thank you so much for coming on. If you have any last words for people that might hear this, you know, here's your time. But yeah,
1: well, well, for Sam, thank you so much. I can't call you Sam. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for having me, and I'm just grateful. I'm I'm grateful to be living today. I'm grateful for uh, for a second chance. Uh, I'm and I owe it all to God. I, I'm I'm not going to sugarcoat my faith because mm-hmm. that's the most important thing to me. Yes, sir. But I, you know, people need to realize that if somebody's been incarcerated or been on drugs, you know, we need second chances, and then especially people who work hard. I always say there is no substitution for hard work Mm -hmm. and and just living our lives out loud. And I look back at my life, how we've been able to build an organization. And I want people who have been impacted by the system. We need to, society needs to know this, that those who've been impacted by the system, we are the ones who can help change the system, Mm -hmm. given an opportunity. So if if we get the resources in our hands and power in our hands, we can help change. And so if you're out there listening and you're you're your employer or your official, you know, look at people who who have done things and give us an opportunity to make it right. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Well, Jerry, thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you, Sam. I really appreciate you having me on.
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, click subscribe on your listening platform for upcoming conversations.